0: I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Jake Catterley grew up on a dairy farm in South Central Wisconsin, but went into agronomy after his dad sold the family farm when Jake was almost out of high school. With 38 years of agronomy experience, Jake is also putting his advice to work on his own 300-acre farm where he no-tills corn, soybeans, wheat, and cover crops. He was a 2018 winner of the Responsible Nutrient Management Practitioners Program, and is an active member of the Farmers of the Sugar River Watershed, a farmer-led group dedicated to promoting sustainable farming practices. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Leseter talks with Jake about his approach to nutrient management, including why he stresses balance more than focusing on specific nutrients. They also talk about the roles boron, calcium, and manganese play in plant growth, how spreading manure impacts soil biology, how GMO corn has reduced the use of toxic chemicals in our farmlands, and much more. Here are Frank and Jake.
1: Jake, tell me a little of your background,
2: where you grew up, how you got into agriculture, etc. Okay, well, I grew up at a small town, Judah, Wisconsin, halfway between Monroe and Broadhead. My dad was pretty progressive uh, for the time. 1965, we were milking 180 cows wow. and farming 700 acres. Uh, my dad was on the state uh, conservation board and the county board uh, on the conservation side. And he actually bought two no-till planters back in the 80s and was doing custom no-till with them. He, was, he had one in Greene County and one in Iowa County. And he ran them for about three or four years just trying to get no-till started because he saw the value back, back in the 80s. I don't ever remember him going to a no-till conference, but <laughs> he was convinced that that was the right way to go. So I'm the youngest of eight. So when I was a senior in high school and he sold out, so but then my dad went into the fertilizer business and that piqued my interest into the agronomy side. And so that's the path I followed then. So where did you go to school? Went to Highland College at Freeport. Mm-hmm. And then I went, did some more small classes through the University of Illinois. So what are you doing now? I'm a private consultant, consult on about 7,500 acres, and then also farm 300 acres. So, so are you a no-tiller, cover cropper? I do 100% no-till now, and we're getting more into more cover crop. I've been doing cover crop after wheat for about the last five years, but now we're starting to incorporate more cover crop. Part I'm trying to focus on is after corn in front of beans. Try to get that stock to decay a little faster.
1: And your um, agronomy work, your crop consultant, you got a lot of no tillers,
2: you got some doing still conventional tillage or reduced uh, tillage or what? I have everything. One of my customers, about four years ago, a young man's taking over from his dad and his uncle, and he looked at me and he said, We're going no till. And I mean, <laughs> so I looked and I said, You mean we're going to start doing no till? Nope, we're going 100% no till. <laughs> And he made it work. Yeah, well, we you, made, made it, you helped
1: him make it work.
2: And, and now that we're no-tilling, their crops have just gotten better and better.
1: I was down in Illinois 25, 30 years ago, and there was a gentleman farmer who had uh, bend storage and he had flat storage. And I said, so where do you put your corn first? And he says, it goes into flat storage. He says, it goes right back in that corner. And he says, there's a moldboard plow sitting back there, and I dumped the first load of corn over the moldboard plow. So when my neighbors are all plowing, I don't get the urge to go plow. <laughs> so it's whatever it takes. So you've been big on, um, on fertilizer and agronomy, and you were one of the winners of the um, responsible nutrient management practitioners that we put on with AgriLiquids. Uh, so you've been big on this. Let's talk about the fertility program that you use on your own farm.
2: Okay, so I grid sample uh, on a two acre basis every other year. So, and then I move those grid points and don't keep them in the same place on purpose. So I wanna try to get that ground evened up as best as I can. So the year we sample, we do variable rate fertilizer, DAP and potash, and then if it needs lime, and then the next year I'll just do a maintenance, and then next year we're back again doing a variable rate application. And it's taken me about 10 years to get this ground kinda evened up where i want it to be and of course today with crop insurance you keep good track of your yields everything i grow goes right to the elevator so i've got good weights and i just progressively have seen the yields just keep going up and up and up so uh, now being agronomist i get to play so to speak so i've been trying to see what i can do for national corn growers and We've had yields of, uh, the highest was 272, 263, we've had a bunch in the 250s, and we're consistently doing that here in about the last uh, six years. And then this year, I had a farm do 240 bushel corn dry, the entire 90 acres went to town, that's what those 90 acres averaged, those 240
1: so, on grid sampling. Some people would argue that you should grid sample the same place every time to see what the change you're making. So, explain your rationale.
2: There. The rationale is that there's been a lot of livestock around this area for a lot of years, and mm-hmm. sometimes they got stuck with a manure spreader. There might be a place where they over applied. Right. So, by moving the points, you're going to vary that testing and find more variation. Because really, what you're doing when you take one every two or two and a half acres, you're only sampling a spot that's maybe 20 feet. Right. And by moving the points, you're going to get this more evened up.
1: Do you uh, soil sample half the farm every year, or do it all once? Every I do
2: two? one farm one year, and okay. the other farm the next year. Got it. And with my customers, I try to split it up so that most of my guys I do every three or four years as on my customers and try to get it so they're sampling a third or a quarter of their farm each year.
1: So the year that you don't soil test, you, what do you do?
2: Then I do just do a, a, a maintenance spread Which would based be off of the yield okay. uh, that, that you would have got okay. off of it. So if you got 200 bushel corn, you're gonna put on a 165 pounds of dap and you know, 130 pounds of potash. What do you do for lime? We have a local source here, so I just used local lime and variable rate spread that lime too. I try to keep my pHs between 6, 7 and 7, 2. Uh, that works best in this area.
1: Any micronutrients?
2: Yeah, and we're testing for micros, and I've seen micros do big things through the years. Tell a little story about a field that's just right here at Albany. Uh, in 2007, we had Farm Tech Days here. Sure. And the field that Tent City sat on is an irrigated sand piece. And I was working with that farmer in the past, and I, I looked at him and I said, uh, hey, what's this irrigated field yielding? And he goes, well, 185, 190 bushel. And I went, geez, it's irrigated. We should be able to crank you know 220, 230 out of this field. And he said, well, I'll put some extra... Nitrogen and some extra potash on, and it just seems to that's just where it is. So I said, Well, there's something missing. So we soil tested it, and it happened to be that the boron test came back basically zero, hmm. was 0.1. So we threw some soluble into the 28 when we sprayed it, and then that year, 220 bushel corn. Wow, 40 so,
1: bushel or so increase.
2: Yep. Wow. So those little things can mean a lot if you've got your big things, your major elements taken care of. So,
1: so everybody talks N, P, and K, but you kind of talk balance, right?
2: Soil has to be balanced just like a ration. And if you get into fertility a lot, you'll find out too high can be as bad as too low. If you've got real high FOS, that's going to tie up your zinc. If you've got too high a pH, that also ties up some of the nutrients, just like too low a pH. For my high yield fields, I like to see my Bray 1P between 35 and 50. And I like to see my potash number be between three and 5% saturated uh, based off the CC and preferably around f- a four or a little above. So my soils run about 15 on an average for CC. So I'm trying to get my parts per million of potassium to be 200 to 220 and there's a lot of people think that when corn doesn't fill all the way to the end that nitrogen is the culprit but i have found most of the time it's potassium hmm. that we can't get enough potassium in late this area of potassium is a real limiting factor you've been uh,
1: putting on some uh, micronutrients any relation with glyphosate on that
2: absolutely so I don't know if a lot of people know this, but manganese is the center of the cell in a plant. So if if you're, if you're iron deficient as an animal or as a human, you're anemic. So if you're deficient in manganese, the metabolism of that plant slows down, and glyphosate ties up manganese. So you have to be aware where your manganese number is. Um, I do most of my testing through A&L labs. Also, you could do Midwest labs. They use some of the same testing. And I like the manganese to be around 40 to 60 parts per million. And when we're talking about boron, boron should be one part per million to 1.5 to be where it needs to be. And then uh, Frank's going to bring up the next one and that's zinc. And zinc should be in that five to eight parts per million. Back when I was at a co-op, we took, actually separated my customers between cash grain and livestock farms and took a look at the zinc, manganese, boron levels And it was very interesting that the livestock farm numbers were almost double of what the cash grain guys were because they were feeding minerals to their cattle and it was coming back out in the manure and it was showing up in the soil tests, whereas the cash grain guys weren't applying any of those at that time. And then once we started putting those into the fertility, we saw crops get better. So So
1: you've had some experience with gypsum.
2: This area (laughs) is derived from dolomitic limestone, and we've been liming with dolomitic limestone. So over the last 100 years of farming, we keep making our magnesium numbers go higher and our calcium numbers go lower. So gypsum is the fix for that because we can apply calcium as the gypsum and then also the sulfur and not raise the pH and... Two years ago at the National Nolltail Conference, you had a fellow there talking about earthworms and how how much they need calcium in -hmm. their life cycle. And when you put gypsum on in southern Wisconsin, you will see the earthworm activity just take off. It's amazing what's happened. We haven't talked about nitrogen on corn. What do you do? Most of the farm, I will spray 28 uh, with the herbicide, and then I'm a big believer in nitrogen inhibitors, uh, either Agartain Plus or Enzone or something, because when we apply into the surface and you have either residue there or a living plant, the enzyme that breaks the the urease, is what it's called, that breaks that nitrogen bond and you'll lose your end. So you wanna protect that nitrogen that you're spending good money for and get it in the soil so that it'll do its job. We've been able to do anywhere from 0.7 to one pound of N per bushel of corn. And I just got a magazine today from a certified crop advisor that was talking about end credits and such with cover crop and don't ask me why, the university is not able to prove it, but I'm seeing about a 10% to 15% bump on yield following wheat with the cover crop of radish and, and crimson clover. This year we were able to run some 300 bushel corn out of that rotation, and I'm not able to do that following soybeans. Either there's some extra nitrogen coming or those radishes are beating up the nematodes, or the clovers making more in? Don't ask me what it is, but <laughs> it's put it in the tank, and we're taking it to town. So,
1: How, what do you do on uh, soybeans for fertility?
2: The beans, uh, they just get the maintenance that's going on. Um, nothing special on beans. Uh, I feel beans should be able to to do their thing with what they get. Uh, we've had nice bean yields. they are running in the high 60s most. Most most of the time here, when it rains, so
1: you don't put in on any nitrogen in the fall.
2: No, no nitrogen in the fall. So the soils here is too shallow for that. Okay,
1: but then you believe in a stabilizer with it in the in the spring or summer too.
2: Oh. Yeah, and I do do some side dressing where I'm pushing for some extra yield, and I've been using a product called Super U, which uh, is urea with Agartain plus uh, infused okay. through the whole pellet. So it protects it from volatilizing and also protects it from leaching. So. so
1: you think the nitrogen stabilizers are more important with no-till because of the residue or not?
2: Absolutely. Yep. Spend extra money for the stabilizer. Don't be buying extra N because if you lose it, the plant's not going to utilize it. Or if you lay it on the surface and you get a big rain, you could lose it that way too. So.
1: Some of your farmers are irrigating. Are they putting on fertilizer through the irrigation systems or not? I do have a few customers
2: that do that. Um, That's very efficient. Um, Usually we try to limit it to 20 to 25 pounds actual end going through the system. And I generally tell them to, you know, at least it has to be waist-high corn to shoulder-high corn when we do that because, when well, where it's irrigated is generally sand. Right. And so then we can run out of nitrogen later in the season.
1: So, so you must have a number of your clients who are dairy producers?
2: This area is strong dairy. So yep.
1: you recommend something different for corn silage, or not? Not so much for
2: corn silage. What I have seen with the application of manure, um, one of my customers was not putting any end down early and they were side dressing it all and we went back to putting nitrogen on early because the biology's got to eat first Mm -hmm. and the manure wasn't decaying quick enough to supply the corn plant early in the season so we went back to putting like 80 units in on a front and their yields went up because that manure then supplied the nitrogen later you have to Remember that the biology eats first and the plant eats second when it comes to nitrogen.
1: So if you had somebody that had a big dairy in this uh, area and was willing to sell manure to a cash cropper, what would it be worth?
2: That's a good question. Um, <laughs> that's based off the price of fertilizer. I tell some of my farmers that, have, that are hauling uh, you know, about, say, 8 or 10 ton per load that every load's worth $100 you know, an N, P, and K. And of course, that's going to depend on what kind of manure they have, how much bedding's in it, and, and so on, so.
1: Years ago, I was editor of a, a national beef cattle magazine, and I was at Greeley, Colorado. The Montforts had a 100,000 head beef feedlot. So they were buying corn silage from everybody in the area. But part of the deal to buy the corn silage was for every ton of corn silage you sold them, you had to take a ton of manure sometime during the year because they didn't have any cropland. All they had was
2: the feedlot, but it worked out for everybody. So did they, they just sold it back to them or they just exchanged manure for? You you got the
1: manure free, but in order to sell them corn silage, you had to agree to take the manure because getting rid of the manure
2: was a huge problem for them. Yep, yep. (laughs) So they basically got free fertility off that. I really think that cattle manure, because of the the rumen, there's a lot of biology that goes out into the soil kind of helps kick in the biology too. Manure is a great thing for ground. One of the things that uh, our watershed group uh, did this summer is, uh, Dan, that was talking earlier, he's gotten into composting. And when I went, I was like, oh, composting, that's no big deal. But when, he got, when they got done uh, talking about composting, I was really impressed. I think composting is a future for a lot of handling manure issues that we have, because liquid is, it's hard to handle tell me about his compost product what's he the biggest thing i got out of the compost was one it's readily available nutrients and two it reduced the volume by two-thirds and the other thing they, that the fellow that was helping with the compost was said fellas don't overload the manure spreader this stuff's heavy you instead of hauling 10 ton you're hauling 20 ton in the same Whoa. load it just condenses it down so much so
1: so is he putting anything in it or is it just strictly manure
2: uh, it's just a mix of uh, solid manure and then some liquid to right. s- try okay. to make it the right consistency so that it right. uh, digests the way it should. So, turn it a couple times? Yeah, they're trying to turn it at least once a month, maybe a little faster. How long will they let it compost? He said it's done in six months. Hmm. And then there's a fellow that's coming around that's, uh, they had a setup for a thousand cow dairy. The building covered an acre and they're pumping air in the bottom through the manure and then they can speed that process up to three months. Wow. A lot of dairy farms don't wanna do no-till because they're concerned with their manure. Well, if you compost it and you turn it into almost like soil, it's not an issue anymore. Plus you can haul it when you need to haul it.
0: We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Jake Catterly in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our Nutel Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little known no-till farmer fact.
1: This short item today is about how no-till went to the dogs. Back in 1972, we had an item, you hear about new crops being grown under no-till conditions, but one favorable comment I've heard, it was really difficult dealing with the promotion of no-till corn for Beagle Clubs, and they kind of got on this. There was an article in the National Beagling News which was suggesting that Beagle Club managers promote no-till corn because it can improve dog training conditions. The dead vegetation from no-tilling corn and sod would remain on the soil surface and make running easier for the beagles and probably also for the rabbits. But with no bare soil, the dogs would come out in cleaner shape. The author also told Beagle owners that no-tilling corn and soybeans will reduce both crop costs and erosion, and maybe this will be the end of dogs falling into three-foot-deep gullies in conventionally-tilled cornfields.
0: And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Jake Catterley.
2: What do you use for weed control? Through the years I've done Corvus, I've done Resicor on corn. Uh, generally spray Roundup with Resicor. Generally I make two trips, sometimes not, depending on ragweed pressure would be the main one that makes me do two trips. If I didn't have ragweed, I could get away with making one. So, And then beans, we uh, do Roundup and I've done uh, Authority First. Uh, we've done Warrant with it pre and then come back and do... Uh, Roundup with uh, Marvel, with Cobra. Uh, I'd like to use the Extendamax product, but I haven't found a commercial sprayer that'll spray it for me without charging me an arm and a leg.
1: Have you tried foliar applications?
2: I have. Um, Actually, my initial job in agronomy was with the Nature's company. So I did a lot of foliar work back in the 80s and then i did some foliar work on some of my corn growers corn here oh about five years ago Uh, it added a few bushel maybe four or five but i didn't see a huge bump out
1: of it so we got legal problems right now with roundup and dicamba the
2: juries are bringing in huge payments what can we know till if we were to lose roundup we can but Every time I see one of those ads on TV, it just makes me mad. And My wife says, will you shut up about that? I've been around gallons and gallons and gallons of Roundup and I know a lot of uh, custom applicators have sprayed it for years and years and years. And I have to side with the EPA and say it's one of the safest products we have. I mean, I've been an agronomist for 38 years and I've seen the skull and crossbone products and Roundup is, one of the really safe ones. I'd really hate to lose it.
1: So well, we started out with paraquat and no-till and bo- there's a
2: product that was. That's a skull and crossbone yeah, right, product. product. Right. I mean, you, you
1: heard horror stories early on about, I remember a guy from Maryland told me he pulled up the planter uh, to go in and eat and uh, it was dripping and he came out and the family goat was
2: dead because eating some paraquat and he was gone just like that. I got a story to tell too. Uh, this would be about the organophosphate uh, insecticides that we've gotten away from through the years. A uh, neighbor came by with a corn planter and his axle broke. So he asked my dad if he could pull the corn planter into the pasture. And it happened to be a pasture where he had heifers, you know, that were six, eight months old and it was, you know, May and the grass was good and they were out. And he just left a little, maybe 20 feet from the gate where the corn planter had ran a little bit of, was in out. There were 12 heifers in that, pasture and I lost six of them and two more of them uh, we had to put down so and the other four must not gotten into it wow so i am a proponent that the gmo corn that we have today is a fantastic thing that we've eliminated tons and tons and tons of hard nasty chemistry from the environment part of the challenge that we see with that is nematodes have become an issue because we're not using that hard chemistry anymore. So now you're starting to see the Monsanto and the BASFs and the bears trying to come out with nemicide to help with the nematodes. Uh, But I think the radishes have a big impact on nematodes. Uh, The sulfuric acid that they make uh, seems to beat them up. So I've had some nematode issues on my farm, tested for them. And saw the yield monitor on the combine uh, jump 40 bushel from, you know, in different areas in the field. And fertility-wise and and soil-wise, there's no reason for it. So So, tested for nematodes and came up with that the nematodes were an issue. And I was like, geez, am I going to be able to keep growing corn on this piece? So I decided to do corn, beans, and then wheat with the cover crop. In that particular field, I'd never had over 200 bushel. And then last year, it went 240. So the radishes seem to beat it up. But it's not a fallacy, I don't think. So with all the benefits we got with
1: GMOs, and, but people were watching their costs, and maybe they think maybe they don't need all these traits. And then we got a number of people who, on a cost basis, have
2: moved to non-GMOs. What do you think? Well, if you have a market for non-GMO, and you can pick up another... 30, 40, 50 cents bonus out of it and you have a way to keep it separate, I'd say go for it. Here in this area, um, there's some non-GMO beans being produced, but as far as corn, there's no market for non-GMO corn. So I think part of the reason we don't have as much insect pressure is because of the GMO corn. I can remember in the old days going to see my brother when he lived in Iowa in the middle of summer and having to stop every 30, 40 miles and wash the windshield because the, <laughs> right. the corn borer moths were like snow. I mean, you, you couldn't see anymore. But now with the BTs out, that corn borer has pretty much disappeared. So if everybody went back to non-GMO, I'm sure they'd be back. But right. when you have 90% of it that is BT, then, then there's not so much pressure.
1: What are you using for row widths?
2: Oh, I'm on 22-inch rows, and uh, I've sat in on several of Marion Kalmer's presentations and looked at his research, actually been down to his place uh, one time. And I think the narrow rows uh, are a huge advantage uh, the further north that you come. And if you farm a lot of marginal ground like I do, uh, you can still plant 30,000, 36,000, and you have eight, nine inches between the plant. And when it gets dry, that crop seems to hold out for another three or four days. Hopefully you get a rain in that period. And I just really think that uh, narrow rows work here quite well. How'd you decide on 22s instead of maybe 20s? (laughs) Well, being uh, just starting farming and not having a shed full of equipment, and I do like to fix things, I bought an eight-row wide planter. Uh, for about eight grand and brought it home and chopped it into pieces and turned it into a eight row 22 inch planter. And then I was able to take a six row corn head and we bought a, another four row, stole two of the corn units out of it <laughs> and turned it into an eight row head. So uh, I was able to get to narrow rows for pretty reasonable price actually. I uh, had about 20 grand in the head and the corn planter together.
1: When you say 22-inch rows, my first reaction is, you must be a sugar beet grower, but you're not.
2: That's, that's something they, they like that. I tried to convince one of my customers, this would have been like 20 years ago, and he was on wides, and I, he said, well, I should go to 30s. And I said, well, why go to 30s? You might as well go right to 20s. He said, wow. And I said, well, what?" I, I had ran into another agronomist that was from west central Minnesota in that sugar beet country, and he said, yeah, we've been on 22-inch rows for years. So I had this farmer call this guy up. He says, what are you talking about? We've been on 22-inch rows since 1976.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so soybean rows, you plant or
2: drill or? Uh, I have been planting everything with that okay. 22-inch planter until this year when we had the monsoon season. So I had purchased a drill uh, in 2018, and so uh, I hooked the tractor up to the drill and said, I went and grabbed my brother and said, you're planting beans and I'm planting corn because uh, it's the middle of May and it's time to go. But I actually would prefer to plant them with the corn planter. I think the corn planter is just more accurate, better depth control. Right, has
1: been for years. Um, See any value of planting soybeans ahead of corn?
2: Well, if you can get them not to freeze, I, I did put some in one year, uh, I think about May 7th, and the top of the hill was good, and as we went down the hill, they disappeared, because about May 20 or so, we got a frost, took them out. So you're taking a risk, and the corn takes frost a lot better than beans do. But I had a fellow put beans in early this year. He put them in, I think April 16th, and they, they were up on some high ground, and they didn't freeze, they were the best beans he had. They were over 80 bushel. Beans are crazy. I talked to a guy from
1: Ohio who, they had all kinds of weather problems, and he planted, finally got his soybeans planted on June 26th, and they did 79 bushel.
2: That's almost like double crop beans at that date. Yeah, beans are, they're just more forgiving than corn. Corn, you got a window you need to get it in, but beans, uh, you can plant them early, you can plant them late. They'll do their thing. We haven't got around the cover crops. Tell us what you're doing in cover crops. I've been following wheat with radishes and crimson clover, and then I just let the volunteer wheat grow. I have thrown some oats and barley into that mix uh, and some so- leftover soybeans I had. Um, the beans I wasn't real impressed with, they got maybe six or eight inches high, and then the frost took them out, so it didn't do a lot of good, but. I do think that the crimson clover radishes, and then this year we threw some buckwheat in with that, which I liked. Bear Seam clover? Yeah. I think that grew a little faster than the crimson clover. I've had crimson clover come through the winter. The first year that it did that, I was scared of it, so I burned it off right away. And now we've learned I should have let it grow. I should have planted the corn into it and let it grow another 10 days and then took it out. I would have made a lot more nitrogen out of it. Every year is different. Right, been,
1: you think you know something and you don't.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so tell me about the the group that you have here in this area. Farmer oh, group.
2: well, we just finished up our annual uh, watershed meeting. It's uh, Farmers of the Sugar River. We're covering the eastern uh, half a green county and a a little bit of rock the state of wisconsin has a a grant program that you can apply for a set amount of dollars Uh, as a group of farmers we decide what that is and uh, our board uh, is trying to promote more no-till more use of cover crops and we're cost sharing some of that expense and trying to get farmers to try new things that will help their farm and their bottom line. I think it's you know, we're catching on. We're, our crowd is growing a little bigger all the time. We're actually pulling people from outside of our watershed some, which is good too. We uh, just really wanna get people to see the value of no-till and in, in the cover crops. It, it, it just makes the soil better. And not only the erosion thing, but the infiltration of water into the soil is probably the biggest thing that I see, and when it goes into the soil, doesn't run it off, and carry away the nutrients that you, you wanna keep on your farm. Right, because right. I, you know, when you lose those nutrients, you're losing money.
1: I like your name, Farmers of the Sugar River. It shows that farmers are involved, and in it. it looks like this is a group that neither extension or government are running, it's the farmers running that.
2: Yeah, last year at the No-Tail Conference, at one of the meals and we're sitting at one of the tables and there was a gal from Maryland in the Chesapeake area and she said, you know, you guys got some farmers here and and we were talking a little bit about how Wisconsin took this farmer-based watershed group and actually this is an old idea. This was done back in the 60s, and the 50s and my dad was involved in it back then and then about by the mid 70s, it kind of went away And they brought it back because it works, because you got farmers talking to farmers about their practices and how it works. And we're trying to share those ideas so that, you know, it's right here. It's right in their own backyard and trying to get them to come and say, "Okay, geez, you know, maybe this isn't so weird or strange or crazy. It does work. Anyway, that gal from Maryland, the government was telling those farmers how to farm and they didn't like it much and she said if we could get farmers to help the other farmers we'd we'd be a lot better and I told her about how this works in Wisconsin and she said "Uh, I'm going to be making a phone call over (laughs) here to get what they're doing and bring it to our state so and I actually had a friend come up today from Illinois and uh, they also would like to get something going down there. So how do you sell
1: these practices to uh landowners who rent their land out?
2: That's a good question, Frank. (laughs) I think they'll see the value if they uh, can see the practice go in and and see the soil get better. But uh, the biggest and the best way is to get them out in the field and let them see what's going on with the soil. We had a field day two falls ago where I did eight different mixes following wheat, Happened to be a cold, blustery, nasty day. Didn't have a big crowd come, but we went down through and dug out the different mixes and looked at the roots and what the soil looked like. And one of the guys, we put a shovel in the ground and I pick it up to about my shoulders and tip, tip it over. The soil would just fall apart and you can see like 10, 15 worms in that shovel full. And we were looking at them all and we're on the front of my field doing this. And then I asked my neighbor if we could jump over the line and go on his side. He's a dairy farmer, and it was also wheat, but he's been doing tillage. And he applies manure, and he's doing a good job as a conventional farmer. But I got on a shovel, and I'm a big guy, I weigh about 230, and I couldn't push a shovel in the ground. So I grabbed somebody's shoulder, and I kind of wiggled it in, and I said, I'm going to break the handle on this thing. <laughs> and I popped out a chunk of dirt, and held it up to my shoulder, and I flopped it on the ground, and it just fell in half. And there was one worm. Hmm. And everybody was really impressed with the difference between cover crop and no-till versus a conventional field. And we were 50 feet apart, same soil, two different practices. I think our equipment's come a long ways to to keep the no-till up to present day. And one of the things I picked up at the no-till conference were those PPT saber blades, Mm -hmm. I had one of my customers put those on. And they have some clay, and it's and it's not a new planter. It's the same age as mine. It's a nineteen nineties white sixty one hundred, and with the tough conditions that we had, and and they're dairy and they're chopping and doing cover crops. They had the best stand of corn they've ever had this year, planting in those tough conditions because of those blades. Hmm. I feel it was just boom, 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 boom right down the line, and uh, it made a huge difference. And we're not running any hydraulic down pressure or any fancy stuff, it's still an old spring machine, so.
1: Well, back in the 70s and the 80s, we used to do a lot of stories on uh, planter and drill modifications because farmers were doing like you did, cut something in half and made something out of it. And the equipment's come so far now, we don't see as many of those anymore as we used to. But farmers used to take something and said, man, that's gotta change. And I always remember, um, I grew up in Michigan and, My wife's parents had a cottage up around Mount Pleasant. We would go up there every summer, and Ray Rawson, who had zone tillage, was not too far from there, and I would try every year to go over and see him for an afternoon. And every year, he would sell his planter in June or July, which forced him to build a new one with new ideas over the next Ah. winter. But for years, he sold, I mean, he had a 16-row planter in the 70s or 80s, uh, but he'd sell it every year so he could try something
2: new so he's being an innovator yeah i've i've been running uh the yetter shark tooth roll cleaners and then i'm running uh just uh, standard openers and then i'm using the great plains closing wheels i've had good luck with those you got colders or not no coulters and then that customer i was talking about they they went to uh, the new martin wheel that's right. got the kind of the depth gauge on the side but a spike and they like those so what are you going to try new for this year well I already tried something out of the box I planted wheat December 26th as a cover crop it was the first time that the ground was fit and it was warm enough so I put the drill in the ground and uh, planted wheat my brother stopped at the bank To cash a check at about four o'clock with the tractor and the drill and the the farm loan manager came out and said what are you doing with that he said well I've been planting wheat and he just turned around and he said that's not right that's just not right (laughs) (laughs) he went back in his office but I'm I'm sure it'll come up and grow yeah so that's great today we the guys said too rye is tough enough to plant it whenever you can plant it And what I'm gonna try new is I still got some of that wheat left, that wheat seed. I'm gonna plant it in spring.
1: Right, we've heard lately of people planting a cover crop in April just to get some growth.
2: I think the cover crop, uh, no matter when, when something's growing in the ground, it helps that decomposition. I wanna get a cover crop in on all the corn ground that I had last year. Right.
1: Good, this was great. You had some great ideas. Uh you've done well as an agronomist, and you're backing it up for what you tell your customers by doing it yourself on your own farm.
2: That's fun to farm. Right. Now you had all the knowledge that I've learned through the years. <laughs> right.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notelfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry.
1: A question from a reader came up is, why aren't more landowners insisting that the farmers who rent their land no-till? And you know, it takes hundreds of years to replace the valuable soils that get blown or washed away from fields. So why aren't landowners more insistent about renting their land only to no-tillers? I was at a no-till program yesterday in which this question came up. How do we get absentee landowners to get more interested in no-till? I think one of the things that's going on these days is there's more interest in soil health than ever before, and I think this will help sell absentee landowners on the value of cover crops and no-till. But I don't have the answer for this because there's still a lot of landowners out there that don't really care much about the soil they have and are only interested in the size of the rent checks that they get from the land that's rented.
0: Thanks to Frank Lessiter and Jake Catterley for today's conversation, and thanks to our sponsor Montag Manufacturing for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlok at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.